Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and today I'm going to cover 30 rapid fire tips for video production. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. On the last episode of the Filming with Josh podcast, which was episode 22, I was joined by my friends Corey Bauman and Dave Ashworth, and we broke down the COVID-19 crisis and how it's affecting small business owners and sole proprietors. If you are a small business owner or are self-employed and are struggling financially right now because of the coronavirus outbreak, go listen to episode 22 of the Filming with Josh podcast so you can Get some insight on the different loans and grants and things that are out there that can help you financially survive this financial crisis that we're in due to this pandemic. Uh, We discussed the PPP loan. We discussed the SBA loan, unemployment, and even some of the different grants that are available. And we also give some advice on where to go to apply for these things, what kind of things you need to know to apply for them, and so on and so forth. So if you are someone who is self-employed or are a small business owner and you are struggling financially due to COVID-19, check out episode 22 of the Filming with Josh podcast so you can get some insight on what, what to do from here. Today, in no particular order, I'm going to cover 30 rapid-fire tips for video production. I'll briefly go in and discuss what it is I'm talking about for my tip and give it a little more detail. However, I'm going to go through these kind of quick so we can cover all 30 in a timely manner. So without further ado, let's start with number one. And my first tip is to always white balance your camera. I have met some individuals who work in the outdoor hunting and fishing video side of the industry and have told me that they were taught to always have their white balance set to 5,500 Kelvin. They said they were taught that if you set your white balance to 5,500, your your white balance will work for basically any video situation. Well, I'm not sure who's teaching people that or why they're being taught that, but that could not be further from the truth. Always set your white balance. If you're working with a camera like an FS7 by Sony that only has three white balance settings, then just set the white balance setting that's closest to your white balance. Um, Or if you're working with a camera that can have a custom white balance, then my suggestion is to purchase a a gray card um, off of Amazon and to get a custom white balance with your camera uh, for each shooting situation you're in so that you have a proper white balance in post. Don't listen to that 5,500 Kelvin rule that somebody out there is teaching because that is not a good rule of thumb. Always have a custom white balance anytime you can. Number two is don't use auto white balance during a time lapse. I've made this mistake in the past where I accidentally had my camera set to auto white balance and when I shot a time lapse with auto white balance, um, I had this coloring color flicker effect and post that I had to iron out in the edit. So if you want to avoid that, try to set your custom white balance, uh, set a custom white balance when um, recording a time lapse so that in post your white balance doesn't have this flicker effect where it's changing as the time time goes on in your time lapse. You can fix it if you are if you have done this and you've shot your time lapse with raw photographs. Um, however, it's just a lot easier if you just get 
a custom white balance before you start your time lapse and don't use auto white balance. Tip number three is when shooting a time lapse, set your aspect ratio to 16 by 9 and your picture profile to match your video shots. Um, as far as the aspect ratio goes, when you shoot video, you are typically going to be recording in a widescreen 16 by 9 ratio. And when you're shooting photo photos, you're shooting usually going to be shooting more of a square-looking photo, something at like a three by four. It's not not exactly a square, but it's not widescreen video aspect ratio either. And so what happens is if you shoot a time lapse like that, you're going to have to crop in on it and reframe and post to match the same aspect ratio as your video content. Um, I have found that it's much easier just to set your, when you go to shoot your time lapse, set your aspect ratio to 16 by 9 in your photo mode so that the time lapse perfectly scales to match the same aspect ratio as your video content. It just makes things a lot easier and it helps you with your framing in the field so that you know what it's going to look like in post before you even uh, hit the shutter button. And as far as the picture profile goes, I've found that when on, I don't know if this is with every camera, but I do know that when shooting on Sony cameras, even if you're shooting photographs in a raw format, for whatever reason, the picture profile, if you have it turned on, will burn the picture profile into your raw photograph. Um, sounds kind of crazy, and it sounds odd because you'd think raw means raw, but for whatever reason, the picture profile does affect your raw photo files. So... I've learned to use this to my advantage. If I'm shooting photos just for photography, I turn my picture profiles off in my photo modes. But if I'm shooting a time lapse, I turn my picture profiles on and set it to exact same picture profile I'm shooting the rest of my video content on so that my time lapses are much easier to match to my standard video content during the edit. Tip number four is if your camera has an electronic shutter, use it for time lapses to save the mechanical shutter. Every camera has a certain shutter rating, like 500,000 shutter clicks, before the camera starts to get wore out. And to save your camera from wearing out your mechanical shutter, if your camera has an electronic shutter feature, like a lot of the Sony cameras, you can shoot your time lapse with the electronic shutter turned on, and it will save your camera from racking up a lot of shutter, mechanical shutter acquisitions that are gonna wear out that shutter in the camera. So if you're shooting a time lapse, use the electronic shutter to save your mechanical shutter from racking up a lot of acquisitions or a lot of clicks. And it will save your camera and, and extend the life of your camera. So that's, that's tip number four. You might be asking, why not just use electronic shutter all the time? And there's a lot of technical reasons why an electronic shutter is actually not as good as a mechanical shutter when shooting fast objects like a bird in flight because uh, you'll have a rolling shutter effect or when shooting um, inside in buildings where you'll have a banding effect. So electronic shutter does have some negative things about it. I'm not going to go into the technical reasons why. So just know that the electronic shutter is not perfect. So the mechanical shutter is going to nine times out of 10 is going to give you better results. However, the electronic shutter is still really, really good, and you can still get the same quality photographs as the mechanical shutter. It's just when you're shooting fast-moving subjects or in certain weird lighting conditions, it will have some faults. So if you want a bulletproof way to shoot photographs, use your mechanical shutter. Um, but 
If you want to save shutter acquisition clicks on your camera when shooting a time-lapse, use the electronic shutter. A time-lapse is typically not going to have um, fast-moving subjects like a bird in flight, and it's typically also not going to have uh, an, a weird indoor lighting unless you're recording an inside time-lapse. Uh, in which case you may not want to do this. But for the most part, when you're shooting time lapses, you're not going to be in a position where you're going to have the negative effects of an electronic shutter. So in those situations, use the mechanical shutter so that you are saving the life of your shutter in your camera. The only exception to the rule is the Sony A9 or Sony A9 Mark II. Both of those actually do not suffer from negative effects of using the electronic shutter because of the way they were designed. In fact, they shoot better with their electronic shutter than they do their mechanical shutter. However, those are exceptions to the rule. Um, by far and away, all, almost all cameras, really besides just those two, are gonna have problems with the electronic shutter. So only use the electronic shutter for time lapses or when wanting to shoot something really quietly like a deer, like photos of a deer, or photos of a, of a fox or something. Um, but for any fast moving subjects or anything indoors, don't use it. Um, but do use it for time lapses to save the life of your mechanical shutter. Tip number five is give your audio recordings 30 to 60 seconds of dead space. If you've ever used noise reduction you've in post, you probably noticed that noise reduction can affect the quality of your audio. If you are, let's say you you're filming an interview and you have a little bit of a humming in the background that you need to remove, like a, maybe it's a refrigerator, you didn't have the ability to turn off and you're trying to remove that, that noise. Um, you probably have tried noise reduction and have noticed that it will affect what the person speaking sounds like and, and can affect their voice in a negative way. So to help avoid that, give your audio recordings 30 to 60 seconds of dead space. So before, let's say it's you're getting ready to film an interview, before you film the interview, just record 30 to 60 seconds of just quietness. Don't have your person speak, tell them not to move, and everybody be quiet, and just get 30 to 60 second chunk of audio where nothing's happening. That way, in post, you can tell you can tell your your editing program like Audition or Premiere to only remove what you hear in these 30 and 60 seconds. And you can do what's called a capture noise print. If you don't know what that means, Google it. Um, but it will capture that sound in that dead space. And then when you apply that to noise reduction, it knows only to remove whatever it heard during that dead space. So if during the dead space, all it's hearing is a hum, then when you apply noise reduction to your um, speaker's audio, it will only remove the hum and will not negatively affect the speech. So a good rule of thumb is to always get 30 to 60 seconds of dead space when recording audio. If you're doing an interview or even something like a podcast, do that. Um, do it for do it for any time you're recording dialogue if you can. That way you always have the ability to use noise reduction in post if you need it. Even if you don't hear anything in your headphones, there might be something there that you did not notice until you get home. So just as rule of thumb, if you can, get 30 to 60 seconds of dead space in your audio recordings so you can target the specific noise you want to reduce with noise reduction. Tip number six is try to record 60 seconds of ambient audio for mixing environmental sounds into your sound design. 
whether you are filming an event or you're filming uh, wildlife, it doesn't matter. Um, it's always really good to capture 60 seconds or so of just ambient audio. Um, you can take your lens cap, put it in front of your lens. That way, uh, in post, when you want to use the audio sound, you just look for the black record, black recorded clip, and, you're, and you'll know that, oh, that's, uh, that's when I had the lens cap on. And what you can do is just put your lens cap on your camera and just use your shotgun mic and get 60 seconds or so of just the ambient audio. If you're filming an event, just get sounds of the crowd walking by. If you're filming outdoors, you're filming wildlife, get sounds of the birds chirping and the wind blowing or the crickets going off. That way you can take that audio and put it into your video mix uh, and post so that way your sound design um, is, has more life to it and you can really bring your shots to life. A great example is if you're using a drone shot, you can take ambient audio recording of birds chirping and the wind blowing and cut it to um, your drone with your drone shot and really bring your drone shot to life. So I like to record at least 60 seconds of ambient audio for each different situation I'm in. So that way I have that audio to mix with in post. Tip number seven is in post, try to have your audio peak smacks out at negative six decibels. A lot of people ask where their audio levels should end up at in post. Um, there's, uh, there's, is no real rule of thumb for like how your how high how high of decibels your music should be as opposed to your speaker's audio. Um, honestly, that's a little subjective, and I don't like to say that there's a rule of thumb there. Um, I think there's a there's a lot that goes into that. But your peak audio, where your where your audio ends up at at the highest level. It's a, it is a good rule of thumb to have it hit negative six decibels and not go past that. So when you're finished with your video, you can play through your video and watch your audio levels. And if they ever go past negative six, then adjust that. Um, and just try to never have your audios go higher, audio levels go higher than negative six. If your peaks can end up at negative six, that's a good spot to be to be able to play well on pretty much any platform. Tip number eight is wear flat sounding headphones to edit audio with. Um, don't use Beats headphones to edit your audio. That's not good um, because what happens is, is the Beats headphones are going to add bass or treble and things like that. And so what you're hearing in your headphones is actually not a true representation of what the audio on your timeline sounds like. So a good rule of thumb is when you're editing audio, use flat sounding headphones so that you can truly hear what your timeline sounds like. Um, tip Number nine is don't use wireless headphones for video editing. Some people have asked me recently about um, using wireless headphones and which ones to use to uh, edit with. And I say don't use wireless headphones at all because all wireless headphones, whether you know it or not, have a little bit of delay. And so if you use wireless headphones and you're trying to cut to, uh, like, like let's say you're trying to cut to a music track and you're cutting your audio to different beats, your timing's gonna be off because your wireless headphones are not going to be a frame for frame match of what you're looking at. So don't use wireless headphones to edit with, use wired headphones. Uh, if you do have wireless headphones that have the ability to plug in a cable, you can do that, but just don't edit with wireless headphones. Um, number 10 is when framing interviews, leave dead space for lower thirds, text, or logos. Um, 
This is something I've learned through trial and error uh, over the years. But a lot of times when shooting an interview, um, I, you know, I'm asked to have like a lower third come on the screen that says like has the logo of the company and maybe the name of the person who's speaking, maybe their title with the company, something like that. Uh, you've you've all seen that. But the problem is, is if you don't frame for that, a lot of times your lower third is competing with your the background of your video. So what I like to do is I like when I frame my interviews, I like to think while I'm setting my cameras up on my subject, how can I leave a space for lower thirds? And so I try to I try to while I'm filming have a natural spot for lower thirds to come on at. That way my lower thirds aren't competing with anything in the shot. So number 10 when framing interviews, leave dead space for lower thirds text or logos. Just remember when you're filming to to think in your head, where can I put my lower thirds in this shot and frame for that. Tip number 11 is if your interview looks flat, try throwing a single light to one side to create contrast and depth. And this actually can apply for any kind of shot, um, but I'm going to use the interview as an example. If you're filming an interview and you're, you're in a well-lit room, but it just looks kind of flat and boring, take a light and throw it on one side of your subject. And what that will do is it will create um, contrast on their face and on their body where if you, let's say you have it on their right side, the right side will have light, but the left side will have shadow. And what that does is it creates some contrast and will help your image pop. Uh, you don't wanna do that for every single interview because then all your interviews will look the same. But if, you, if your shot looks kind of flat, and again, this applies for more than just interviews, but if you have a shot that just looks kind of flat, Try throwing uh, light to one side or another to create some contrast and some depth. Tip number uh, 12 is when shooting in log, overexposed by one to two stops. A lot of people I know, they try filming in log and they say it's really noisy or grainy, um, but the truth is they're underexposing it. Log should not be underexposed ever. Log really needs to be overexposed by one to two stops. And then in post, you um, bring your exposure down by a stop or two to make it properly exposed. That's the proper method for uh, exposing um, log. And if you do that, you will have perfectly clean results every time. I've been shooting in log for, I think, going on five years now, five years straight. And uh, I've used noise reduction maybe twice in five years. So if you overexpose by one to two stops, you won't have to use noise reduction because you won't have noise to reduce. Number 13. Learn to use a histogram to expose your footage. A lot of people don't use a histogram. They just expose for what they see in the screen. But that's not a good way to monitor um, your exposure. The best way to monitor your exposure is to look at a histogram. Actually, there's, other, there's also waveform monitors and things like that you can use. But most cameras at least have a histogram. So if your camera has a histogram, which pretty much all of them should at this point, use your histogram to expose your footage. If you don't know how to use a histogram, just Google it. Tip number 14 is use ND filters to cut light so you can film by the 180 degree rule. Um, a lot of people don't use ND filters and they just change their f-stop or their shutter speed to um, adjust for the light. And that's not good. When you watch any movie, no movie is shot where they use <laughs> just ND or their shutter speed to adjust for the exposure. That's not a good way to film. Um, you really need to be using ND filter. That way you can have your shutter speed be twice your frame rate, 
So you're following the 180 degree rule. And so you don't have to use your f-stop to, to cut out light. So use ND filters, guys. Um, it's really important for cinema. Tip number 15 is not all variable ND filters are created equal. Uh, just because it's a variable ND doesn't mean it's a good one. Don't go out and buy a cheap $20 plastic or poor quality glass ND filter just so you have ND and stick it on top of a $2,000 lens. What you're paying for in that lens is the glass. And if you want, if you pay for good quality glass, there's no sense in putting bad quality glass in front of it. So get a nice quality ND filter. But sharpness isn't the only thing that's affected by a poor quality ND filter. You'll notice that there are even expensive ND filters that are really sharp and that don't really take away from the image quality in terms of sharpness, but they have other problems, like they have an X pattern that comes on um, on the uh, on the shot, which is something, if you don't know what the X pattern is, basically an ND, a variable ND filter is where you are rotating two pieces of glass, and if you rotate them past a certain point, they will start to have a negative effect where you see this kind of X come on to your footage. You don't want that. Um, some of your so your higher quality ND filters will no longer will stop churning before that happens. So that's something to look for. Um, your higher quality ND filters are going to have very little color shift. Um, and that's something you want. Color shift is where if you put ND filter in front of your lens, maybe it gives it this milky brown kind of look to your footage. You don't want that. You don't want your color to change because of the filter. You want your color to try to stay as true as possible. Um, and, and then also poor quality ND filters will have vignetting issues, especially variable NDs. So when you're buying an ND filter, just know that not all are created equal. Invest in nice quality NDs that won't take away from the image quality in terms of sharpness, that won't have the dreaded X pattern, that won't have a really bad color shift, and that won't have a bad vignette. So do your research when you buy NDs and invest in nice quality ones. You need NDs if you're gonna film. Um, you could use a matte box too um, to have your ND filters, but I understand a lot of people are gonna wanna use variable um, NDs that thread on top of your lens. So if that's what you wanna use, then fine, but just make sure you buy good ones. Tip number 16 is when using a gimbal, learn to catwalk to take out the Z axis. I think people don't understand that a gimbal only takes out the roll, pitch, and yaw. It doesn't take out the Z axis. And what that axis is is the up and down movement. Gimbals take out a lot of shakiness. They take out tilt in a camera or different panning issues when you're walking or running or whatever. But what they don't take out is the up and down walking movement. They can help limit how bad that movement is, but they don't completely take it out. So if you wanna take out the Z axis, you need to learn to catwalk, which is basically where you bend your knees, and as you walk or run, you're absorbing the shock of your steps in your knees. And what you find is, and you do this with a little bit of practice, and what you'll find is, is when you walk or run, you can really minimize your up and down movement in your video. And if you combine the catwalk with your gimbal, that's how you can get really, really stable looking footage. If you are just walking or running like normal with a gimbal, you're gonna have the up and down movement. It may not be as bad as it would be without the gimbal, but it is still gonna be there. So learn to catwalk to take out the Z axis. Tip number 17 is when using a drone, try shooting at 4K30 for the best results. 
I don't like shooting at 60p on my drones because I feel like if you use slow motion on your drones, it's just, I don't know, it just feels too slow to me. I like filming um, more regular speed with my drone shots. So, but I don't use 4K24 because drones are moving in the air and oftentimes they're moving really fast to the point to where um, if you film at 24 frames a second, you'll notice some chop, too much choppiness in your shots. So I've found that filming at 4K 30 and slowing down by 80% in post gives me a really nice look for my drone shots. They still look cinematic, the shots still look really good, but they don't have a really bad chopping effect because of the speed at which they're moving versus the shutter speed. So I like to shoot at 4K 30 with a shutter speed of one over 60, which is twice my frame rate. That way, I can impulse slow it down by 80% and have a really nice look. And when I say slow down by 80%, the reason why I can do that is I'm working with 24 frame rate timelines. So that's that's just a tip. If you're working with 24 frame rate timelines, try shooting your drone shots at 4K 30 and slowing down by 80% and you'll get really nice looking results. Tip number 18 is that panning landscape shots typically look better when shot at 60p. This kind of is similar to the drone thing. And what it is, is when you're shooting a, a landscape shot where you're panning and showing off a landscape, if you're shooting at 24 frames a second, a lot of times you'll notice that your panning shot has just, it, the shutter speed just doesn't look good for a panning shot and kind of has a choppiness to it that just, I don't know, I've, had, I've, I've done that before and had people complain when watching my videos and say, man, that panning shot kind of hurt my eyes. I remember hearing that kind of earlier on in my career. So I found that by shooting at 60p and kind of panning a little faster and then slowing that down in post gives you a really nice smooth panning shot. You can also shoot at 30p kind of like on the drone and slow down by 80% um, and, and have a similar effect. But my favorite way to shoot panning shots for landscapes is to shoot at 60p and slow down by 40% in post. That's my favorite way to do it. Um, but there is no right or wrong way. But just know that if you shoot at 30p or 60p, you are often, more often than not, going to have smoother, better looking results than you are going to be filming a panning landscape shot at 24 frames. Tip number 19 is turn image stabilization off when panning on when filming panning shots or action shots. The reason is if you're filming a panning shot and you have image stabilization on your lens turned on or maybe IBIS turned on, um, sometimes you can see that the image stabilization is trying to adjust for your panning shot and it will move around and actually take away from the shot and add, it, it actually adds movement to the shot that shouldn't be there because it's trying to adjust for what you're doing. Uh, in a negative way. Same thing with action shots. If you're shooting action shots on a tripod and you're like, let's just say you're filming a basketball game and you're whipping up and down the court with your tripod, um, a lot of times the image stabilization will be trying to correct for your movements and will end up creating um, not good looking results because it will add, it will actually add movement because it's trying to fix something that it shouldn't be fixing. So when you're using image stabilization uh, for panning shots or action shots, turn it off. Rule number 20 or tip number 20 is the rule of thumb when purchasing a fluid head is to buy one that can counterbalance twice the weight of your heaviest rig. Notice I said counterbalance and not hold. When you go to buy a tripod like a Manfrotto or a Benro on uh, bnhphoto.com, for instance, a lot of times they'll tell you what the, tri what the fluid head or tripod 
can hold, what the max weight it can hold. It might say something like, can hold 50 pounds, but that's not what you want to look at. What you want to look at is not what it can hold, but what it can counterbalance, because counterbalance is what you're looking for to have a true, smooth, fluid head shot. So what you want is a fluid head that that has a counterbalance rating, max counterbalance rating of twice what your heaviest camera rig is gonna be. So if you know that, okay, my biggest rig I'm ever gonna film with is an FS5 with a 100 to 400 millimeter lens, a shotgun mic and uh, Atomus recorder, then put all that together weigh it, get a weight for it, and then now when you go to buy your tripod fluid head, um, look for what a, a fluid head that can hold at least twice, or can counterbalance at least twice that. So like my heaviest rig is 16 pounds. So when I go to, when I went to purchase a fluid head, I knew I needed to find a fluid head that could counterbalance um, twice that. So I, I was looking for something that could counterbalance 32 pounds. Uh, or, or at least 32 pounds. And that's how I ended up with my uh, FSB10 by Sockler. So if you're looking for a new fluid head, uh, the rule of thumb is to look for one that can counterbalance twice of what your heaviest rig is going to be. Um, tip number 21. If you are recording interview audio or filming an interview, um, try using a boom mic and a lav mic at the same time. This is one of my favorite ways to record an interview. Obviously, if you're running and gunning and you can only throw a lav up on someone, then you know you got to do what you got to do. But if you have time to set up an interview and to light it, then my favorite thing to do is to run a boom mic and a lav mic at the same time. That way, I'm always having a backup track. And if I get home and I go to edit and there's something wrong with the boom mic, I can cut and I have the lav mic as a backup or vice versa. And sometimes I like to mix the two together. I might really like the way the boom mic sounds, but the lav mic by design, because it's an omnidirectional mic, might be recording a little bit more of the what the room sounds like. So I might mix a little bit of my lav mic sound into my boom mic uh, audio. So this is one of my favorite ways. Even if I'm recording two people at once, I'll run two booms and two lobs uh, at the same time. So if you have time to set up a boom mic and to set up a lav mic for recording interview audio, um, take the time to do that. It just sounds really good and it gives you a nice backup track one way or the other. Tip number 22 is purchase men's grooming tape um, as well as vampire clips to help hide lav mics and talent. There are like the Rycote undercovers and overcovers that you can purchase, but I don't really use those anymore. I used to use them, but they just didn't stick well for me. Um, so I have switched to using men's grooming tape and I will oftentimes tape my lav mics on the inside of the clothing of my subject. Um, and then sometimes I'll use vampire clips. If you don't know what they are, Google Google it and you'll see. But vampire clips are basically clips that have two little fangs on the back, almost like safety pins. And they look like vampire fangs. <laughs> um, and that's how they get their name. But you just take these two little pens and you just like stick it on the clothes. That way, instead of trying to clip your lav mic, which is harder to do when trying to hide your lav, you can actually just safety pin it almost inside of... Um, like a jacket or a shirt, and that way you can hide your mic easier. So men's grooming tape and vampire clips are two different ways I hide lav mics on talent. Number 23 is when purchasing a lens for video, don't just consider how sharp it is or what the image looks like, but also consider how well it manual focuses, how much it breathes, and how far focal it is. 
essentially, a lot of people think that a cheap lens is only cheap because the glass is not very sharp, but sharpness is only part of it, right? You can buy, like, my wife shoots most of her wedding photos off of, like, a $250 Sony 50mm f1.8 lens. It's not a bad lens in terms of image quality. It's got some 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 issues, like chromatic aberrations, and I don't really like the way it flares. Um, however, it's not a bad-looking lens. But what makes it not good for video is it's terrible at manual focusing, and it's got a really bad breathing effect, which is basically when you rack focus, the lens shifts so much that you act, it actually zooms in while you're changing your focus and zooms out as you change your focus back the other direction. That's called breathing, and that's not good. In video, when you are rack focusing or focusing from one subject to the next, you don't want, you don't want to see your image zoom in or zoom out um, at the same time. That's a negative. So when you're buying a, a lens to use for video, don't just consider how sharp it is, but think about it in terms of video. How does it breathe when you're manually focusing with it? How, do, how is it to focus with? Is it easy to manual focus with or is it a nightmare? Because a lot of lenses, especially still lenses, are hard, hard, hard to manual focus with. And uh, that just makes it really, really tough to pull focus in video. Um, and so they, they, even though they might have a good image, it doesn't mean that it's good for, for filming, right? So look at how it manual focuses. Look how much it breathes. Look at how parfocal it is. If it's a zoom lens and you know you're going to zoom during, the, during a shot, a lot of still lenses will lose focus when you zoom. Um, if it's parfocal, then it will not lose focus when you zoom in or out. Um, most cinema lenses are parfocal. Cine, cine zooms are. Um, but a lot of still lenses are not. So those are things to look at when you're purchasing a lens for video. Don't just look at sharpness, um, but look at how it manual focuses. Look how much it breathes. Look how parfocal it is. Check out the lens flares. See if you like them or not. Those are different things to look at because if it's, if it's a good-looking lens but it's hard to work with, um, then it's not a good lens to work with for video. Number 24 is on a DSLR or mirrorless camera, use microphones with them that have built-in quality preamps so you could turn down the gain in camera. Essentially, if you are using uh, like a 5D Mark IV or Sony a7 III, the preamps in those cameras are never going to be as good as like a zoom recorder or the preamps in a big camera like an FS7 or uh, FX9 or C300 Mark II. So because of such, when you are working with a mirrorless camera or a DSLR, a good rule of thumb is to use microphones that have preamps built in and turn your microphone's preamps up pretty loud so that on your DSLR mirrorless camera, you could turn the volume of the audio recording down. So like a, a really good example is if you film with the Rode VideoMic Pro. The Rode VideoMic Pro has the ability to turn, it's either plus 10 or plus 20, I don't have mine on me at the moment, but you can turn the preamps up to plus 10 or plus 20 decibels uh, on, on your Rode VideoMic Pro. And if you have VideoMic Pro, do that. Switch that switch so you're adding, I can't remember if it's 10 or 20, but switch that switch to where you're adding gain into your Rode VideoMic Pro using the Rode VideoMic Pro itself. And what that does is it makes that mic hotter. It, it produces a louder sound. And so in your mirrorless camera, because your 
microphone is producing a hotter signal, you could turn your volume down in your DSLR mirrorless camera. So that way you're using the preamps on the microphone and not the camera itself. And as such, you'll get cleaner sounding audio to work with in post. Tip number 25 is if you have a shotgun mic, try using it for your voiceover work. If you're looking for a mic to use for your voiceover work, a shotgun mic is a great mic to use for voiceovers. Uh, just make sure you're using it in a room that doesn't have a lot of echo in it or, or reverb. So like if you have a walk-in closet, you could take your shotgun mic in that walk-in closet and shut the door and especially if you're, I mean, obviously you need clothes in there, but if you have a walk-in closet full of clothes, go in there, shut the door, and uh, you can record a voiceover into your shotgun mic and you'll get pretty, pretty awesome sounding audio. Number 26 is if it's cold outside, try putting your batteries in your pants pockets so they stay warm and hold their life. I've, I learned this when I was in Pakistan and we were filming in the Himalaya mountains and it was really, really cold and my batteries were dying so fast. And I brought 30 batteries with me to Pakistan um, and charged them all before we got there because I knew I wasn't going to have a way to charge them while I was there. And so to preserve the battery life, I put my batteries when I'd go out to film during the day, I'd put my batteries in my pants pockets and it would keep my pants would keep my pants because they're close to my legs would keep the batteries warm. And because of that, they would not uh, die on me out of nowhere. Before I did that, when we first got to Pakistan, I'd go put a battery in my camera and it would say battery is exhausted. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> I charged it before we left. Uh, and turns out it was the cold was zapping it. So putting, putting your your batteries in your pants pockets do a really good job of keeping them from dying fast on you. Number 27 is know that cropping in on 4K is not going to produce the same look as actually zooming in on your shot in the field. What I mean by that is when you're shooting 4K and you crop in on posts, let's say you're, you like to film uh, out in the outdoor industry and you like to film deer hunts, know that when you zoom in on a deer with your lens, it's gonna look different than if you zoom in on the deer and post using 4K to 1080 or 6K to 1080. And the reason is because when you zoom in on post, you might be able to have the same framing that you might get if you zoomed in tighter with your lens, but the depth of field won't be the same. When you zoom in on a subject with a zoom lens, and you get the closer you get to the subject with the physical lens itself, the shallower the depth of field is going to be. If you do it in post instead, you use 4K or 6K and you and you crop in in post to get the same framing, um, so you can do it in post then rather than with the lens. You might be able to zoom in on the deer in post the same distance as you would with the zoom lens. However you're not getting that depth of field change. The depth of field is not going to change just because you're zooming in on it in the edit room. It's just gonna change the framing. So just know that it is not the same thing. If you want that really crisp, shallow depth of field shot where you're zooming in on like a deer or a fox or a person and you're blurring out the background, that comes from zooming with the lens, not from zooming in post. Number 27 is most lenses are soft at their widest aperture. So stop down if you're looking for sharper results. A lot of us buy fast lenses so we can shoot them wide open. If you, my, I, I love shooting my 51.4 at f1.4 all the way open. Um, it looks beautiful. 
However, most lenses are going to be at they're going to be soft wide open. It's just the way that the glass works. And so to get them to be sharper, you want to stop down some. So if you have a lens that has a max aperture of like 1.4, if you stop it down to f2.0 or even 2.8, you're going to have sharper results nine times out of 10. Um, the best lenses are still pretty sharp wide open. Like my 51.4 Zeiss Planar is still really sharp wide open at 1.4. Um, but it does still get even sharper when you stop down. It's just, it, it is still sharp wide open. Other lenses like Canon's 51.2 is terribly soft wide open. When I owned that lens, I never shot it at f1.2 because it was so soft. Um, but when I stopped it down to like f2, it was razor sharp. So if you have a lens, I'm not telling you not to shoot at your lenses wide open if, you, if that's the look you want. But if you notice that your image looks kind of soft, know that stopping down your lens a little bit could sharpen that up for you. Number 29 is don't use Sony's S and Q mode for slow motion on their mirrorless cameras. Um, Sony's mirrorless cameras have the S and Q mode on the dial. Um, and a lot of people will go to the S and Q mode to shoot their slow motion. However, do not do that. If you're working with an FS5 or an FS7 or an F5 or something like that, then the S and Q mode's fine. But on the mirrorless cameras, the way Sony's designed their cameras is when you go to S and Q mode, it actually shoots at a really low bit rate. So let's take 120 frames per second, for instance. 120 frames in HD on the mirrorless cameras might shoot at 100 megabits per second in the normal video mode, but if you use S and Q mode, it might shoot at like 25. I don't remember the exact numbers, but the point is, is when you use S and Q mode, it's using a much smaller, much smaller bit rate than if you were shooting slow motion or a higher frame rate in the standard video mode. So S and Q mode, I, I wouldn't use it for anything. It's terrible. Uh, some people used to use it for time lapses. You don't even need to do that anymore because of the time lapse mode in the mirrorless cameras. But on the Sony mirrorless cameras, don't use S and Q mode for time lapses. You have the time lapse mode, and certainly don't use it for slow motion because it kills the bit rate and looks terrible. Um, and then number thirty is when exporting a video, give it a lot of meat so it can survive compression. I know that, and we all know that when you export a video, you're actually compressing the video. And then when you upload it to YouTube or Facebook or Vimeo, you're compressing it even further. And a lot of people know that when you upload a video, it doesn't look as good as it did in Premiere or in uh, Final Cut or DaVinci Resolve. And that's because it's going through several rounds of compression. However, the more meat you give that video file, the better it can hold up through that compression process. So for instance, when I export HD video on out of Premiere, I will do a VBR2 pass and I'll set my target bit rate to like 50 or 40 and I'll set my maximum bit rate to 50 or, or is it 50, 60, something like that. <laughs> my point is, is I go really high, um, really, really high. And I like to give my videos a very high bit rate because if you give them a very high bit rate, then when you export them, there's a lot of meat there. And so, as it's exporting, it's compressing, but it's keeping a lot of meat. And then when you send it to Facebook or Vimeo or YouTube and it compresses it even further, there's still a lot of meat left over at the end of compression. Don't compress it to whatever suggested rates are. Like it will tell you if you use Premiere and you export to Facebook and you have like the 
export to Facebook setting in Premiere, don't use that. Don't, because it sets the bit rate too low. Set a high bit rate manually and export it with a high bit rate so that when you do upload to Facebook, there's a lot more meat there. If you do that, you'll have better results. And that is my 30 rapid fire tips for video production podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I enjoyed making it. If you have any questions about any of the things I covered today, join the Filming with Josh Facebook group and post your question there so we can answer it for you. I appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to my podcast. Please hit subscribe and I'll see you guys soon. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.